0: Coming up next is this month's special series, Focus on Men's Health, on ReachMD XM-157.
1: It only makes sense that efforts to reduce unintended pregnancies and sexually transmitted diseases among adolescents target males as well as females. This has not traditionally been the case, and there is not yet consensus as to how to best provide reproductive health services to male adolescents and young adults. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Baltimore, Maryland, is my guest, Dr. Arik Marcel, assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins University's Department of Pediatrics and the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Marcel. Thank you. Dr. Marcel, why aren't primary care physicians talking to boys about reproductive health topics, and do they talk to girls?
0: Pediatricians and family practitioners are the two primary care specialties that do a good job in seeing adolescents and younger children. Around the age of 15, boys' use of health services starts to decrease, and there aren't other specialties that pick up those boys, like girls have ob pick up their services. Internal medicine just isn't picking it up at the same rate. So part of it is that there aren't just as many boys as they get older after age 15 in the health system, and part of it is also just part of the socialization of medicine. A lot, a lot more girls are using services, so physicians tend to just be more comfortable addressing um, issues that are related to women's health.
1: You mentioned in your writing that teenagers who talk to a healthcare professional about reproductive health are more likely to discuss the topic with their sexual partners. That's a powerful reason to have that discussion.
0: Definitely. And it's also true that probably parents who are engaging in services with their young teenagers are helps to stimulate those types of conversations as well.
1: You've noted that less than 20% of healthcare care providers counsel adolescent males about reproductive health care. What are some of the counseling points that you offer to the primary care provider?
0: I think part of it is um, definitely having an environment that is comfortable for teens to come to, and part of that is also developing trust relationships with teenagers. And also part of it is as the provider themselves, being comfortable talking about issues related to sex. If we're not asking those types of questions among our teenage populations, we're not going to know whether or not they're sexually active or that symptoms that they're presenting to us are related to potential sex activity. So definitely asking about it, being comfortable asking about it, creating an environment that the teenager is that comfortable to be asked about those types of questions is, is an important first step. Sometimes setting up systems relate on that address confidentiality of care is important. So in my practice, we will ask parents if they have accompanied their adolescent to a visit to step out of the room in order to have confidential conversations, private conversations about sex and other topics that are sensitive, like mental health, drug use, etc. It's not meaning that parents shouldn't be involved in their teen's health sometimes we do bring parents back into the fold, but I think it it helps to create that safe space. Another aspect of what providers should think about when working with young people and talking about sex is having consistent messages around counseling points. In my practice, I try to have a consistent message for all of my patients that if you're going to have sex, to use condoms, and talk about birth control with your partners.
1: It's helping them with their comfort level. And you mentioned that the clinician should also feel comfortable talking about this. Can you talk about what some of the myths are about adolescent male sexuality that healthcare providers should be aware of so that they are not biased when interacting with boys and young men?
0: That's an interesting question. I'm trying to think about um, studies that have, have actually addressed whether there are What myths providers hold, I think we, we tend to think more about kind of myths that teens hold about their peers having sex. But probably some of the issues are related to either that maybe more personal attitudes that kids shouldn't be having sex at this age and having judgmental judgments around that.
1: With regard to the boys, what are some of the attitudes and beliefs that males hold that contribute to risky behaviors related to reproductive health?
0: One of the domains that contributes to risky sexual behaviors is what the cultural beliefs and what cultural beliefs hold in, in this society around the male role in what he should be doing and not doing, especially when it comes to sex. And it's somewhat of a double standard that you know, males are encouraged to have sex, whereas girls still might not be. But those are all things that contribute to this culture and the stereotypical you know, male role. Now, does that translate into every single individual's actions? You know, not necessarily, and I don't always see that in my clinical setting, but I, I think that it helps to contribute to how media messages are portrayed, what we see in movies and TV, and that does get translated to younger kids and what they think might be happening or what they should be doing. The other part of it that some kids think that when it's normalized that sex is happening among teenagers, they, they do feel this peer pressure, which may not necessarily be from peers and maybe more from society that all teens are having sex at that age and so that they have this pressure to feel like they need to be also having sex as well when that may not necessarily be the case.
1: In one of your studies where you surveyed a lot of boys, there was an interesting response from the boys. They described pressure in the form of teasing or bullying from other boys to have sex, but they said that that didn't influence their behavior. On the other hand, they said that they felt pressure from girls, and that seemed more important in terms of whether they acted on it or not.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really part of the culture that they're in, and also developmentally where they're at. I mean, I think early adolescence, that may not be as much of the normal developmental pattern, we start to see the influence of peers during middle adolescence, age 15, 16. And that's when the majority of boys in this country have their sexual debut.
1: Interestingly, you pointed out that in terms of specialized clinics, men only receive reproductive counseling in the setting of STD clinics, where women have OBGYN gyn clinics and family planning clinics.
0: It's harder to really understand where is the predominant location where men are being served and being served well regarding reproductive health. I would say that school-based clinics probably are the place in this country right now that do a better job in serving males broadly, you know, and in proportion to girls as they get older and beyond the age 15. And its broad service is not only restricted to reproductive health issues. Some of the family planning clinics, like Planned Parenthood, serve males, and so reproductive services, you know, are provided as part of that setting. And I think historically, STD clinics take a broader approach beyond just STD services and and try to address issues related to reproductive health as
1: well. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Arik Marcel of Johns Hopkins University. And we are talking about services for male adolescents regarding reproductive health. Dr. Marcel, you've written about the Young Men's Clinic in New York City. Tell us about that clinic.
0: That's a clinic that is part of a larger clinic focused on family planning that serves women and was developed, I would say, about 12, 15 years ago with the idea to you know, work with both parts of the equation, both men and women. And they started doing street outreach in order to build a patient population base and have been very successful in uh, reaching to young men throughout New York City but also um, focused up in the, um, the Washington Heights neighborhood.
1: Do you like the idea of a medical clinic for men with reproductive health being one of many services offered to males?
0: You know, I think every city has its own challenges and and each location, depending on access to transportation and what is the public health marketing and, you know, media availability um, contributes to whether that kind of a model could be successful or other kinds of models are successful. I think school-based clinics are a great resource, but once boys turn 18, 19, and lose health insurance coverage either through Medicaid, like the Children's Health Insurance Plan, or coverage by their parents, trying to identify other places where kids or young adults can go um, is a critical aspect of how services might be set up in a, sp- in a particular location. In su- certain cities, STD clinics are highly stigmatized, so it's not the a, a, a type of place a young person would want to go to to seek care. So knowing what the populations in the cities think about different settings is an important part of how one would think about setting up services for men and to do a better job to do that.
1: Right. In in um, some of your research, you took a look at integrating male services into the traditional female reproductive health care model. And you found that 84% of the clients served in the clinic for males had never been to an STD or family planning clinic. So you were successful at reaching a different population than the one that would use existing services.
0: Correct. And and that particular study was an outreach study focused in schools. But actually, you know, anecdotally, I mean, we we were hoping that the population we were outreaching to would be the, the main users over at least in the initial part of the project. After implementation, and we were surprised to see that the integration of men's services in this historically family planning clinic was really picked up by the female patients that were being seen there. So they saw that this expansion was opportunity to either engage their partner or spread the word to other males in their lives, brothers. And I think it was that population that really benefited from. This new service.
1: The female population or the?
0: The male population that were related to the females that were being already served by the clinic.
1: So the females were a great resource for you to recruit yeah, the males? Yeah.
0: And I think other studies have shown that mothers and you know, females in general are kind of the center around men's health. And so you know, they, they, to, to be able to leverage patients in a, an existing clinic to help the word is, is maybe a not very costly mechanism you know to, to expand services, to think about expanding services.
1: You mentioned outreach programs used for the young males. Can you describe how outreach programs are designed to target male reproductive health and what's been learned about using outreach programs?
0: I think there, there's a variety of different mechanisms that have been used street outreach, broader social service um, health campaigns, connecting to locations where young men are actually already engaged in but may not necessarily have a health component to it. For example, a community-based organization another other organizations in the community that um, engage you know, young men in sports activities, recreational activities, GD programs, juvenile justice, adjudication programs. So, I mean, there's broad ways of thinking about engaging young men, linking to schools or colleges. But at this point, evaluation is still... Underway, And services are either brought to the young men at those locations that are maybe kind of tailored, stripped-down types of services, clinical services, um, using non-invasive HIV testing, urine testing, distribution of condoms, or purely health education in the community with the referral back to a central clinic um, for the more standard types of clinical services.
1: Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Arik Marcel, assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins University's Department of Pediatrics in the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Marcel.
0: Sure.
1: For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.
0: Listen all month as ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals, presents a special series focus on men's health.